Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. Let's pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are, episode three of Apologetics. Here we are. Very excited for it. Did you have a couple program notes? One was we promised a podcast with my kids on, and then since then my daughter went through an illness, and so we heavily promised having guests, and then we didn't. But we're going to release that anyways. But by now you will have released that anyways, right? Yeah. Uh, So... Yep, that's what happened. We recorded a podcast that it was intended to be as part of a, a group of podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. It was on resiliency, and we were going to be talking about vocation. I think a number of episodes mm-hmm. there were there were planned. And in the busyness of earlier this year, it got uh, put in the queue. And then as those um, delays ensued, it stayed in the queue, and it didn't it didn't go live until um, I realized that it was there as I started you know, getting these apologetics episodes up. I, so, I still would like that to happen, maybe even Thanksgiving when there'll be a round yeah. next. But, um, so the other thing was we talk at the start of episodes about how it's been such a long time since we've, <laughs> you know, recorded, but, maybe, but those are maybe coming that out. Maybe that should be the awkward opening. <laughs> that should be the awkward opening is we just pretend it's been so long, even though it's, <laughs> I think this is actually one of the m- most consistent we've been we in, in recording over productive. the, over the, course of a over the course of a month i think we're on but this is going to be three and then maybe right. four tomorrow maybe another one next week so someone uh, so, puts them on and in the fourth episode in three days they'll hear us talk about how long it's been that's yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. that, that's i'm committed to opening up the next episode here with it's been so long <laughs> no we're both uh looking at a good, good season in life to do this much more often so <clears throat> I'm excited. Yeah, I am. I am as well. I think the apologetics episodes will get us another three or four. Could be um, to get get us to the end of that sort of uh, planned planned programming, if you will. And then we're already queuing up a few ideas for store for some conversations yeah. after that as well. So, yeah. So I'm going to read what C.S. Lewis called the greatest lyric in the world. This is Psalm 19, opening verses. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So this idea of mute, mute but deafening praise. Um, it comes from the stars, and every corner of the universe, for that matter, is a loud shout that he is, that God is. So sometimes I think about that we have the biblical version of some of the classic arguments for God's existence, and I kind of like the biblical version. So um, the universe can't explain itself. Why is there something rather than nothing? You have to look beyond matter, energy, space, and time for an explanation is kind of the classical apologetic frame, but the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, right? 
Um, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, every house has a builder. Well, the builder of everything is God. And so there's, there are versions of this that have the advantage of not only maybe not triggering what somebody heard at the university as far as the answers, because it's not framed philosophically, but, but even more that these are the inspired words of God and inspired words of God. And so therefore they have a, an inherent power. So I sometimes talk in terms of that, nat- that natural knowledge of God that maybe sleeps deeper in people nowadays, but that, that, that day you looked at the sky with awe, you were not wrong. Um, you were not wrong when you felt like you owed the universe an apology. So that sense of guilt that is so ubiquitous in the human condition. Um, these are not my favorite arguments. My favorite arguments are what we'll get to in a big way eventually, resurrection apologetics and the phenomenal reliability of the New Testament. This is one step re- removed from that because they're not about Jesus, these arguments for God's existence, but they are very, very robust. I was thinking we live in a time when you can find a YouTube video that's more slick and more powerful than anything we could ever create. And so if our listeners want to search Google search fine-tuned universe and just be amazed at uh, how robust, robust that evidence is, that uh, we're that life is purged on a razor's edge. And so that'll make more sense if people want to go look at that. Sometimes it's called the Goldilocks idea that everything that has mm-hmm. to be just right to support life. It's incredible. Just incredible. Um, yeah, the the universal constants, I believe. Exactly right. How Gravitational constants. The Habermas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just how, how incredibly... Uh, improbable all of those things arising out of the same event are it's it's a it is a very rare thing that we have here regardless of what what you believe and so that isn't everyone should be able to recognize that yeah without without any issue i think right well the only answer that i've ever heard is that someone will say well you can't be surprised at the universe because Unless it had these conditions, there would be no observer to be surprised at it. And so Mm -hmm. that strikes me as you're just trying to talk me out of the sense of wonder I have that we beat, we beat those odds that are just (laughs) unthinkably great odds. You just can't even imagine, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) And so, I mean, that's the, that's the only answer that can be from someone that is committed to just not following that clue. And maybe we've talked about this before. I'm starting to feel like maybe we did. Um, I don't know when we would have though. I like the notion of saying not proof, but a clue. If you're going to offer mm-hmm. it as proof, then someone can say, well, we beat the odds. So what? But to yeah. offer it instead as a clue, as a really important clue. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, maybe we'll cover it more deeply. I think the next, the next sure, episode, yeah. depending on how far mm-hmm. we, we go speaks to some of the specific, I think defeaters that people have or right. the, the specific, um, arguments like how do you how do we communicate that those specific things and Mm so that might be where it comes up again so to close my devotion i was thinking of this classic old hymn how great thou art where there's two verses you know oh lord my god when i an awesome wonder consider all the works i had made and two verses of that and just when you think you've exhausted you know this talk about the glory of god then verse three and when i think that god is son not sparing sent him to die i scarce can take it in I just love that transition to what is our true subject in apologetics. What we really always want to talk about and get to is Christ crucified and raised. And 
One of our fathers said about polemics, so if we're going to argue doctrine with other Christian groups, he just said, let it be another form of bringing good news, or there's really not a reason to do it. Why talk about baptism or conversion or the Lord's Supper or whatever if it isn't really another form of bringing good news Mm -hmm. to, to get to that unconditional gospel that we Lutherans get to uniquely enjoy? And that's what I apply to apologetics, that same idea. Let it be simply another form of bringing good news that that will always have Christ at the center or you kind of think, what is really the point yeah. to argue with people? To be know? transparently Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that same idea, absolutely. Um, while we're just talking big picture, a couple of things that we do not want to do in apologetics have come to mind. Stop me if I've said this before on our podcast. I, really, I, I told you before we started, I'm teaching this stuff right now in class, and so it's really hard for me to know if, if I've said something in you know, in what context, but so Kierkegaard had a concern about apologetics, if he would ever raise up apologetic geniuses. And that means, let's say there's a debate between a Christian and a materialist person or, or atheist, and our guy won the debate. And we draw all kinds of confidence that our guy won because he's the genius, right? He's offering arguments I can't offer. If I tried, I'd fall on my face. He's offering arguments I don't fully understand. But I just get a confidence from the fact that my guy won the debate. And Kierkegaard would be saying just how superficial, if that's where your confidence is, just how, yeah, how, how paper fickle thin that is. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think totally. we might have vaguely touched on this, but I'm, again, it's, okay. it, feels, it feels somewhat refreshing <laughs> for me because we, <laughs> okay. we, even if we just recorded last week, it's still a good. Yeah. I well, apologize if that's, if that's the case. I do. But I do I like remember. Being... I do remember we talked about uh, the state of the world where Kierkegaard was and the situation that kind of brought about oh, those conditions. So, so, so maybe that's where the overlap is. But maybe, yeah. So his concern, in part two, was that, in part also, was that you discourage the what he calls the apostolic voice, the person that simply witnesses to Christ. Yeah. And the simplicity of that, and you know that. If it feels like a weak thing not to ground all this stuff in our own wonderful powers of reason, it is so that the power of Christ would rest on the nothingness of the of the man, and that the power of power of Christ would rest on the apparent nothingness of the gospel. To not discourage that way of speaking and thinking, um, he he thought that apologetics was at least at least as he saw it being carried out, he called it a second Judas kiss, which meant that he purports to be on the side of Christ, but it really, if it appeals to reason in the wrong way, human reason, you're really smuggling in an idea about about reason that is very much um, a betrayal of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because it's a view of human reason that reason is the path to ultimate truth. And if that were the case, then we don't need revelation. We don't need the Holy Spirit. We just have human reason to work these things out. But reason is deeply flawed. I always say it has a gaping red wound in its side. It's arrogant. It's um, what counts as reasonable changes from one social context to another. It's just limited mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways. And it's not anti-reason to recognize reason's limitations. So we don't want to take up apologetics in a way that smuggles in a view of truth that is in its own way kind of devastating, right, to, mm-hmm. to Christian teaching. So I think there may be more could be said about what we're not after in apologetics as Lutherans, but... Anything that brings to mind for you? That's no, I do kind of it for me at this I, point. 
I do think that uh, the um, being able to use both of those things or or speak to both of those things in a conversation is a is a valuable tool, which might be like the recap of the first or second apologetics conversation that we've had here, which was um, you, you don't need to rely solely on either one or the other. You can there are times when some one is more useful than the other, and there mm-hmm. are times where uh, it's not. And so to be mm-hmm. able to recognize those things and to use them not sparingly, but uh, judiciously maybe is the right word. Yeah. And you're referring, I think, to that distinction between what we can investigate yes, and, and what we just witness and testify to. So that's, yeah, good comment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good. Really good. Have we talked about fideism here? That I, do not, that I do not okay. remember. So, so <clears throat> we just did this in class yesterday where we try to ground everything in our apologetics unit in just what Lutherans know about the nature of unbelief and the nature and causes of faith and you know i cannot by my own reason or strength believe in jesus christ my lord nor come to him these things that lutherans see with this with special clarity but having said all of that a person could walk away thinking well we're fideists and the simplistic idea of a fideist is um you ask me how do i know this is true this christian stuff and i say well you just got to believe you just got to believe. And that is an awful thing to say because mm-hmm. you'd be telling, for example, a young person going off to college, don't think about it. Don't examine it. Don't you mm-hmm. dare close your eyes, you know, and as, as if it's this fragile thing and that there's no evidence at all for, for Christian truth. But we will get into that eventually, just how much there actually is. Yeah. I, th- I think one thing I've learned recently, you think of Jesus saying, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, says this to Thomas. So what it means to me now, a friend of mine helped me to say this, is the evidence the apostles had was their own eyewitness experiences, right? So they had that evidence of seeing with their eyes Christ crucified and raised. So we don't have that. We haven't seen what they saw. Our evidence is the apostolic testimony. Mm -hmm along with other things as well, the phenomenon of prophecy and so on. So I might have said at one point in my life, we believe without evidence. I don't say that mm-hmm. anymore. It's a different evidence. It isn't with our, with our sight, as I say. But it is um, a response to the profound testimony God has left for us in this world, to know that there are very good reasons to believe in Jesus raised from the dead. So anyway... Um, that, that was my favorite part of the, uh, the F.F. Bruce book, was just the, the oh, importance yeah, of yeah. testimony and you know the that kind of testimony from one of the most accurate historians on record isn't to go without consideration. <laughs> it's 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 talking yes, about Luke, it's, yep, totally. it's world class. That was that was one of the the biggest takeaways for me in terms of you know looking at those yeah. those documents. And that yeah. reminds me too okay. of hey. uh oh no continue. I was just gonna I was going to interrupt and say, by the way, have you thought about dessert? Ooh, I have. Do you I have, have not. something for dessert? I have not. So, with the back of your mind, while I'm blathering on, maybe you should be. I will. About yeah. It. <laughs> as okay. we're as we're moving through usually the courses, I'm that. already thinking. <laughs> I'm already. Usually, we talk about that before we get yeah. on, and we've been talking about being more spontaneous and just not preparing at yeah. all. <laughs> but, but, uh, no, I'll be thinking about it. I'll be thinking about it. Yeah. 
So I think with this episode, we can, if we, if we left our sweet spot for this podcast, we can kind of get back to it, which is, what is the communication side of all of this? And I've often said, if I, if I personally bring anything to apologetics in our circles, it would be on that side, thinking of this as a communication task, not so much one of the definitions we offered earlier, that the academic discipline among other disciplines at the university. Mm-hmm. So as a communication task, I would um, <clears throat> go back to something we talked about a, a lot, but maybe apply it to apologetics, and that is simply active listening. Um, seek first to understand, then and only then to be understood. It's just this guiding principle. It takes a ton of pressure off. And, and um, yeah, so I say about a person I'm listening to, talking to, I just say, let me be able to explain it to her better than she, better than she can explain herself. What's getting in the way of Jesus here, you know? Um, mm-hmm. We said way back when, I'm sure I always say this, that my words are weak when they come from a shallow understanding of what's in front of me. And so kind of bringing all of that communication stuff back to the front of our minds as we think about how it applies specifically to apologetics. Um, got a thought on that? I'm going to maybe tell a story, but I want to let you jump in. I mean, I could listen to you talking about listening all oh. day. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's meta-listening, so listening to, list to yeah. listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I told this in class Yesterday, that's why it's, or today, which is why it's fresh in my mind. So when I got my first call into the ministry, it was to start a church from scratch. And the very thought was overwhelming. I thought, who thinks this is a good idea? <laughs> um, besides the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, of course. Oh, my goodness. I took a nap just to escape. And that's just, I'm not proud of this, but that's how it hit me. So I go to a party that night. And at the party are all these guys with their hearts on fire with their first calls into pastoral ministry. There were a couple that didn't get calls, so there was a little bit of a tension about that. But anyway, mm-hmm. walk in the room, and what I witness is Michelle, who's an atheist, friend of a friend, is surrounded by five of my friends, and they are pelting her with apologetic arguments, like the ones we just used, for example, the Kalam argument mm-hmm. and why is there something rather than nothing and five on one. So I, th- I thought to myself, five on one, they probably don't need any help. Probably don't need to make it six on one. So I remember, remember spending a couple hours in the kitchen, you know, with kitchen friends that evening. But then later on, she was by herself on the couch. And <clears throat> this is a story of, boy, Lord, you did this just for me because of where I was in my own headspace. So I sat down beside her and I said something like, this is 30, 36 years ago, so I hope the story hasn't shifted from what actually happened. But as I remember it, I just said, I wonder, did you get to say what you think? And she, and she laughed and said, are you kidding? I got to say what I think? And so I'm a listener, so I just said, well, tell me. Tell me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think she probably talked for 20 minutes or so. I just kind of let her pour mm-hmm. out her grief and the suffering that she's seen in life and the suffering that's been part of her own life and so on. And they just let her get to the end. And she just kind of exhausted all of that. And long pause, and I'd never had this conversation before in my life, but I said something to her like, that must be hard. And so that, of course, is a listening skill called the reflection of feeling. You can see in her face Mm -hmm. it's hard. So that must be hard. And I said something like, to live in a world that is every bit as bad as you say and more, 
and to have no God besides. And she just said, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Long pause. Never had this conversation before in my life. And I just said something like, could I show you a side of God you haven't seen before? And then I talked about God in pain and God suffering, God on the cross. All for her. And I'm not a smooth person in these kinds of things. I don't want to pretend to be. But that's the gist of what I said. And when I was all done, she says, you know, when you put it like that, it makes total sense. <laughs> so that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you, God. I mean, to have the best conversation of my life on apologetics on that day of all days, and just to kind of realize mm-hmm. that there's going to be a way for me that's going to fit me. There's going to be a style. And it's going to have seek first to understand at the core of it. It's going to have active listening at the very core. And it happens to actually work very beautifully. Um, <clears throat> people love being listened to. You listen long enough and they'll, they'll let you talk to. So yeah. seek first to understand. You know, to say about these challenging conversations, in my head I say, doggone it, I'm going to understand this if I can. You know, and mm-hmm. as long as that takes, doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. So anyway. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a great story. I yeah. like that. That's uh, I've been in maybe a handful of those kinds of conversations, and it, I'm trying to remember what it feels like to be in that conversation, because I'm trying to do, I think, a multiple things at the same time. One of them is to you know, remember that checklist about active listening <laughs> and whatnot as, as things. But um, no, oftentimes I'll I end up just getting, c- c- all of my focus and attention just goes towards, uh, I try to not distract right. myself with trying to remember like, oh, what is the next thing? Or like, what's the, how do I reflect the emotion properly? Or any, I just let it, right. I just, just all of my focus and attention is on, just understanding exactly what they're, where they're coming from. I just, I'm just, I'm trying, I'm not going to miss anything. I'm not going to be, you know, drifting off in my thoughts, trying to figure out what I'm going to say when they're, when they're Mm -hmm. talking, I'm just going to let, let myself consume everything that they're saying and just as it is, and then be curious enough to allow that to continue without, you know, putting a halt to it. And I got to stop you. You're reaching for my dessert, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, you actually are. Though. I'm going to talk about a book that I've been reading and really loving that says the very things you just said. So that's cool. Yeah. Speaking of books, there's a book that's been kind of making the rounds, I think, in our circle. So it's going to be more and more people listening now that will have heard of it. But I think it's really worth spreading the word about this book. It's by an author named Greg Kukul. It's called Tactics. I forget the subtitle, but Tactics. Now, hearing him speak on a YouTube video, I didn't find him that likable. And some things that he says, I don't know if he lives it as far as... He claimed mm-hmm. not to want to do a gotcha on people and make them look stupid, but you get a bit of a sense of that when you listen to him talk. But the book is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the, the premise of the book is really, really useful. Um, one is that... Christian apologists can remain friendly and non-adversarial, that any Christian right now today, no matter what they know or think they know, can be part of this conversation, the, the apologetic conversation with somebody outside of Christ. Um, no more waiting, no need to delay, you're ready right now. 
And it's an idea that can help drain most of the anxiety out of the situation. And it really is, as, as I said, an application of seek first to understand to this particular challenge. And so he's, he's kind of saying that the home run is simply to be at the plate. So just to be in the conversation is a win, no matter how you think it went. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of goes like this. So he's saying that there's two layers of questions that you can be asking right now today. One is to ask questions that are basically saying, so what do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say such and such? Church is full of hypocrites. What do you mean by hypocrite? What does that mean? Um, and the other layer of questions, you can come out with different wordings, but then the second layer of questions is, how have you come to think this way? Or why do you think that's true? Now, um, <clears throat> the idea is to stay in that mode for as long as you can and as long as you want to. Um, as long as it seems productive because you're gaining more and more understanding. But it just completely takes the pressure off. Now, the third layer of question is what comes of questions is what comes from experience. So in the third layer, you get to say, I wonder if you thought about such and such. Because you happen to know something about the evidence that's out there. For example, almost all the New Testament um, disseminated to the church fathers across the whole ancient world by 100 AD. And such and such books written... 25 years after the events that they narrate and so on. So more and more you gain knowledge and information for that third layer when you're ready to put the, what he says, put the stone in the shoe, mm-hmm. that you say something that will nag at the person and, and kind of be stuck in their mind. And um, we'll maybe talk more about that later too. But um, So I remember some of the applications that are really good. <clears throat> One is, let's say, a popular professor um, Let's let's say a popular professor says something like, well, you know, most people don't think Jesus is even real. And a student will raise her hand and say, Professor, how have you come to think that? Or what do you mean by that? Um, and the professor might want to turn the tables and say, oh, don't tell me you're one of these Christian people. Please don't tell me you're one of those, you know, idiots. Well, all she should say is, no, 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 professor, you said no one thinks he's real anymore. And I'm asking you, why do you think that's true? Mm-hmm. And so that she can kind of refuse to turn the table, have the tr- tables be turned on her like that. Just stay in that mode. Yeah. Just stay in that mode. And so be uh, insistent, is, insistent on the question or exactly or committed to, committed I actually to, want to hear what you have to say yeah, about that. Committed. Yeah. So it can be, let's say a person says something like, oh, you know, there were at least 20 different gospels and the council of Nicaea suppressed all but four. And they just kept the fourth and have Jesus as the son of God. And and let's say you're the Christian. You never heard that nonsense before. It's total disinformation, but you'd never heard it before. All you would say is, you know, that's an interesting story. Why do you think that's true? And you'd quickly find out this person doesn't know what they're talking about. There's no reason to think that's true. But so even not having thought of that at all, you still can be um, in the conversation, at the plate, asking those first two kinds of questions and walk away having learned something. Mm-hmm. Where you walk away, get stumped. Well, now you do some homework, and the thought that you can gradually accumulate knowledge over time. And if somebody knows more than you do, all you got to say is, "You know what? You know more than I do. You know more than I do about this. You thought more about this. Let me get back to you." And mm-hmm. that's just that's not a bad outcome at all. So I love the idea of not delaying our witness. I love the idea of any Christian right now today is qualified to to be be in the game. And I think it's really true that it, it can take a lot of pressure off once you understand it. So, make sense to you? Yeah, that 
I, I, There's more to you know, the book, but it, I like it, that most. It does, uh, it fits right in with the active listening in my mind. Just you're, you're totally digging clear. deeper. You're, you're just trying to, I mean, extract sounds manipulative, but you're, you're really just yeah. trying to under, like, understand what do you actually, what experiences did you have that led you to think that or um, what, getting clarity on what they've said. I think there have been a few times where I will, uh, it's not just one of those questions. Like you can ask that and they will continue. They will tell you exactly that. And then there's mm-hmm. a, a, a handful of these layers that you can really start to get towards things that, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I was stumped, but there was w- one that came up recently was something around, I think, I don't know the exact author that he was referencing, but we were talking about how Hebrew or Greek is interpreted today. And I think he's referring to like critical historians who are kind of reimagining how these words can be interpreted and then kind of like using that to, to say really what you can say almost anything when you are at liberty to decide how you think these things are interpreted. So the, I, I didn't get any, neither of us could remember off the top of our head, anything that was productive for that Avenue, but that that's, um, that that's one where, you know, it would be interesting to find out deeper, like, okay, what did the historian say that contradicts everything that I've been talking about or, or that, that does anything. It would be really interesting to hear. And and then I can, then I can be like, you can say, well, can you send me the author? I'd like to read it myself, you know, and then that perfectly, it also cues up for a further conversation. Not all of these things have to be this one time ordeal. That's you say it, it's over. It's, it's, you want this almost to be ongoing. It's not meant to be a, a, a singular event. It's, it's almost, I would say better to have conversations that are expected or understood to last, you know, multiple conversations over the course mm-hmm. of time. Yeah, there's a, a writer that's not a safe writer. He's <clears throat> not at all theologically, Brian McLaren. But what he does write effectively about is kind of what you're talking about, is the, the ability to have spiritual conversations so and spiritual friendships. So we are friends, we don't agree, we are able to maintain our friendship and then return to these things often because it, it was not an unpleasant conversation. And so we can circle back, and if we ever don't have an answer, just don't know, that can be a good thing, um, because it makes us easy to talk to, if everything isn't just all, Mm -hmm. you know, pat answers from my back pocket. And one thing he says that strikes me the most is that, now this is kind of dated, it's probably 15 years old or more, but he says that young people are having spiritual conversations all the time, and they're keenly interested but he says, guess who is the last person they want to talk to about this stuff? And it is the Christian who has all the answers and so on. And So not knowing sometimes is not a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning how to have the conversation be winsome so that we don't mind having yeah. it again and again. It, it also cues up for an easy way to, you know, if you're interested in the topic, you can cue up the conversation. It becomes the starter, the entry point into a further conversation down the road. Yeah. So it's, it, it does become much easier when you, um, you are able to have that you're, you're basically speaking with friends, right? And so you're, you're expected Mm -hmm. to have conversations over and over. And then it's like, if you, if the topic is ready for discussion, you can easily bring it up and, uh, and continue in that way. 
I, I would say mm. not to be counterfactual, but I have found that my uh, friends who are not Christian aren't necessarily fearful of, of discussing with me what, what, what is mm-hmm. there. So that's not, um, I, I have not seen those defenses and maybe that's circumstantial. I've only, I mean, I had a, a handful no, of these people, but I think especially if you are starting off the conversation with a very keen curiosity towards what they believe, they're very willing to have that discussion. Yeah. And and there's very I little resistance towards like, oh, you're a Christian. I don't want to talk to you about this anymore. It's there, I haven't found <laughs> too research much of about that, that. Yeah, we mentioned that research. Right? Yeah, I think so. In our listening, yeah. we have a few people are very happy to listen to someone talk about their faith or to hear about Christianity from someone that believes it. Eighty uh, percent of people would say they're happy to hear mm-hmm. that, happy to have that conversation. So, yeah, it's kind of memorable that uh, Cuckoo calls this the Colombo approach. Do you know that cultural reference, Colombo? I do not. Oh, John, you're I'm so I'm about young. to learn. Oh, I wish I was. <laughs> it was my dad's. It was my dad's favorite TV show. Mm. So Columbo was this short guy played by Peter Falk. Falk, and he wore a rumpled trench coat and always had a unlit cigar in his mouth, and and it was just a rumpled guy kind of. And the show always showed you at the front who did it and how they did this crazy mm. murder that was so clever. No one's gonna ever figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, Columbo figures it out <clears throat> early on. He has his hunches. And then his whole approach is he just harasses those people, this suspect. And it's always, I, help me understand this. You gotta help me understand this. I just, here's what I don't get. Help me understand mm-hmm. this. And he'll walk away, then he'll turn around and say, one more thing. Help me with this. And so it's always, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand. Tell me what's very going interesting. on. Me, that's a very and, interesting take on the like detective mystery yeah, Sherlock Holmes. So that's the Columbo approach yeah. is that we just, help me understand this. There's something about this I just don't get. Help me. And he knows the, he knows the whodunit yeah. the whole time. Yeah. That's, he, that's, he drives them crazy. You should, you should binge watch that show. It's, it's I, old, I, but it's, it's pretty I'll good. I'll have to find that. A couple yeah. episodes of that. My dad's favorite show, like I said. So anyway, the, just the, the picture but, in my mind is, is pretty incredible right now. It's this short dude in the trench tiny coat. beater of a car he drives. Yeah. And so I was talking about his wife, but you never, ever, ever see her in the show. And no, it's, it's almost but, feels a little bit like a, like a detective doctor house type of feel. Kind of. Yeah. Only he's not nasty. He's just, he's irritating. not, yeah, he's not <laughs> without the necessarily derogatory right. sometimes uh, aspects. Yeah. But like very like. Not afraid to just dig deeper a little bit into that but thing he, that's frustrating. Yeah, he yeah. just stays in that mode the whole time until the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. And so so that's that that chapter in the book is prominent. It's I think it's the biggest theme in the book is just the Columbo approach. There's other things, just one more randomly. Um, someone says, So is homosexuality a sin? The answer he suggests in a different part of the book is you know, before I, before I answer that question, can I ask you, do you consider yourself a tolerant person? And he will say, yeah, I try to be. And then you say, okay, now what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And you try to get together on a definition of tolerance as we can disagree and still care about each other and still treat each other, you know, warmly. And so I think that would be a nice way to maybe approach that conversation. It's just, because if, if this whole question is so you can call me intolerant, which is like calling somebody ugly in our culture, it's just the worst insult there is in our in our times. If that's what this is gonna be, then I don't know if this is useful. Um now we're on that on that topic. The other thing I would say just briefly is 
I think the next time I'm asked that question or question like that, I'll simply say, you know, I can't take any other view than Jesus took. I can't take any other view than Jesus took and his apostles on all those hard, controversial questions. And I might even say, it would be good if you got it from him. Mm-hmm. So, that, that Testament I, I, I have had used, not uh, maybe used that approach. It, it doesn't come up very often, that topic, but I'll mm-hmm. just say, I believe whatever, mm-hmm. like the way the Bible says it, that's what I believe. Yeah. yeah. And then that's, uh, maybe it's, I don't want to be deflective. The thing that I'll add to this is like the, with the Columbo approach and with mm-hmm. the, the way to get, get about all of these things is, um, just to reiterate that it's not meant as like a gotcha. It is exactly. it, it is about getting to the the core of what someone believes, not in an adversarial way, but as like a like to just to yeah, just remember this is good news. And so mm-hmm. it's like you're you're like uncovering a treasure as you as you mm-hmm. like dig dig further into it. Exactly right. And so it's not like a, oh gotcha intolerance, you know, or, oh, gotcha, you know, Jesus said homosexuality is wrong. That's like, that's not the, the, the purpose of these, but it is, but the, the questions you ask can be similar and they're just meant right. like the, you can change the, the mood behind it. I suppose the, yeah. the, the place you're coming from is, is one of, um, like curiosity, inquisition and, uh, care and concern for the, for the person that you're talking to. I just really want to understand this person. I'm sure there's more to the story than Mm -hmm. than what I know. And I'm trying to draw that out in a very sincere way. And so what do you mean? And have you come to think that's true? Have you come to this point of view? And then the third question could be just, I wonder if you're aware of what the apostles said, Mm -hmm. or I wonder if you're aware about what Jesus said. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm looking at, at our, PowerPoint that we're kind of loosely following. And I remember just now that we've actually talked about Grice's maxims and how they help us to have spiritual conversations. So <clears throat> I don't know if we need to go over that again. Maybe not, huh? I don't think so. I think we have covered that in previous, uh, the, the two episodes before this one of the two. Or no, way back, I think on the conversation about conversation. Oh. The meta conversation. I think we talked about it there. So... <laughs> I do remember talking like the the topic coming up. So anyway, in a nutshell, it's not hard to have spiritual conversations because conversations need need new topics every now and then, and we can have this prepared in advance. Mm-hmm. First time there's that moment we need a new topic, I can just say, "Hey, by the way, I thought about you when I was listening to a sermon on Sunday or whatever." And so mm-hmm. that it takes courage, but it isn't difficult. Yeah, to create those conversations. So enough said on that. I know we hit that pretty hard. Can I touch on the uh, defer- definition of um, being tolerant again and yeah, just uh, hit with that? What are what are you trying to? What is what would you agree on in that conversation? What are you, what are you aiming towards by maybe momentarily going on that tangent with someone when you're talking about whether whatever you know, homosexuality mm. or an, another yeah. sin or another, um, uh, issue at hand. But when you, when that conversation comes up, what are you, what are some good things to keep in mind? Like, what are we aiming towards? I'm going to forget the scholar's name. Was it Habermas? Something very much like Habermas mm-hmm. who <clears throat> talks about quote, the ideal speech situation. And so what I'd be aiming mm. for is to try to get at a conversation that is open-hearted and isn't, isn't gotcha 
isn't that if I if I answer your question honestly, it's going to get nasty at that point. So to establish that tolerance means we care about each other, though we disagree. I'm just trying to create that create that sort of setting and context where I can then speak openly and freely. And I do. Give you the, I do the answer you deserve. You know. I do remember this from my argumentation class, which was mm, one of my okay. one of my favorite mm. classes. I think it's mm. Jurgen Habermas. I think it is could, Habermas. Jurgen Habermas, the oh, ideal okay. speech situation. Yeah, um, trying to manage power, trying to manage all kinds of things that mm-hmm. would get in the way of a free and open mutual flow of ideas. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a good core principles to like. I won't go into details about the actual mm-hmm. ideal speech situation, but the purpose of it is to kind of lay the groundwork for where a proper dialogue or a productive dialogue can occur. And <laughs> sorry. Erner <laughs> what's happening that, in the background. <laughs> picture is no, falling just, on my head right now. Oh no. Is it okay? Is it fine? I yeah, only it's see my, the... it's my diploma actually. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an obnoxiously big diploma. I should Hide it away someplace. I want to include that in the ideal speech situation <laughs> bullet point. Yeah, ideally, uh, yeah, pictures ideally, not pictures not falling. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, what a great, what a great tangent. Um, but but I no, think- I do, I do remember that that part of it. And so, really, you're not aiming at this is a definition that we should agree on, but it's more just to uh, have that conversation up front right. so that you can say, look, we do. Uh, have a difference between, you know, tolerance and say, um, like hatred. Those are separate things. Those words have all shifted in culture. Yeah. It's kind of an attempt to. Tolerance and condoning something are different things. Exactly. Disagreeing Uh, is not hatred, as you say. That's really important. So we'd be just kind of, well, I'm sure we've talked about um, Vasavak's idea of metacommunication as Mm -hmm. the single most important skill is to, to talk about how we talk, I think can be really super useful, especially if it's a situation that's charged and could easily go off the rails somehow. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how we talk. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to disagree with you. You can disagree with me and and we can still like each other. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe another thing I'll bring up while it's on the top of my mind is that usually when I'm, I remember a time in my life when having this type of conversation, I was very anxious the entire time. I was nervous. I was afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or not be able to like respond to a certain thing or not know where the person's coming from and all of this. Or um, other times where I would get frustrated with not being able to get a point across. And the more that I've been able to have this type of conversation, the less I find myself getting into those modes. And I think it is a much more, um, you're able to be transparently Christian better when you are not frustrated mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're not, when you're not anxious. And so it's like yep. tapping into the, the joy that we have in Christ is a, is a good place to be in that conversation. So it's not, it, it there's no, it, it alleviates the pressure that you feel like I have to do something right or um, achieve something right here, right now. You can, you, you are able to like take a breath, relax, let the conversation happen. Yeah. And if, if, if you're finding that you're defaulting towards these things, that's where active listening and, you know, having these questions where you can just ask what something means or like what makes you think that allows you the, the time you need to kind of like collect yourself. 
if, if necessary. Right. And so, and then usually diverting any of that type of anxiety towards understanding helps dissolve any of those types of feelings. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to acknowledge, I can imagine that a lot of people have nervousness in this type of conversation. Mm-hmm. It is very and, liberating. Yeah. <laughs> really liberating this kind of mode. Um, yeah, I think we've called it before the performative contradiction. Here we're talking about the love God has for you. And and if I let it happen that you're not feeling any love for me because I'm frustrated or even angry, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's what we're trying to avoid. And I think the listening as an ideal has that kind of baked into it um, in, a, in mm-hmm. a great way. I was talking to a friend uh, this week. He had, or last week, he had occasion to listen to like lots and lots of hours of debate on the topic of abortion between pro-life Christian speakers and not. And I asked him, what, what, what was the takeaway? What did you get from that? What was the, what did people do well or not do well? And he just said, the debates that, that impressed me the most on the part of the pro-life speakers is when they were clearly the most caring person in the room. And mm-hmm. that's a, it's a psychological issue, not an issue of the means of grace and making the argument. But I think it, I think that's a good takeaway. To be the most caring person in the conversation is a great thing to strive for without any question. Yeah. And there's lots of scriptures that affirm that too, that we would be so kind to people that they'll end up being ashamed of how they maybe weren't so kind, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go back to my argumentation class. There are a handful of different ways that you can judge a debate. And sometimes it does come down to who did I like more? Mm-hmm. There, there. Yeah. You can't deny that that has an effect on the way that people perceive your argument. It's like, are you coming across as uh, intolerant, bigoted, frustrated, gotcha, or are you coming across as like, I really just genuinely care mm-hmm. about the person I'm talking to right now? That's those are very different perceptions to have when you're on the other side of that conversation right. or in the conversation as yourself. It's not fun to be the target right. of something, and so when you make someone a target for something, then it becomes very, uh, as we said before, it's just, you're not, you're, what's, what's the real point of the conversation then? If it's just about setting up things and knocking them down. And they'll remember for a long time how, how they felt mm-hmm. in your presence more than the things you said. So yeah, we've said that before too, but yeah, I, I mean, Aristotle agrees with you. He thinks you're right <laughs> that liking <laughs> Is part of I'm part of our ethos, <laughs> persuasion, or part of our credibility is mm-hmm. just psychologically. I, w- I want to be on your side if I can because I like you, and I like how mm-hmm. you conduct yourself, and I like how I felt when I when we talked and so on. So these are psychological issues, but but not irrelevant by any means. I I mean it goes back to I think we talk about it in teaching. Maybe that's something fresh for. Uh, I mean, I remember in MLC it was like, how did they phrase it? Are you um, the guide on the side mm-hmm. or the sage on the stage. I can't remember who's, I can't remember exactly which class it was, but, uh, the approaching the conversation as if you were trying to like uncover or show Christ to someone like with them. And you, you have, you can maintain that I'm not adversarial. You can just approach it like inquisiting this thing that's outside of the, the conversation mm-hmm. that way it doesn't become so, you know, back and forth as like a, it's not a, there's no fight to be had. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a discovery. Yeah. I've, I've been studying conflict because of my, might've told you about 
getting to lead our whole faculty and staff on the topic of difficult conversations. That's, that's really one of the things I learned is, is, is sensing when it got personal, when it's personal and sensing the need to separate the person from the, mm-hmm. from the thing that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and there's ways to do that, that I think are really useful. So as I was saying, Kukul writes the right things in his book. When you hear him talk, you kind of wonder if he really believes mm-hmm. <laughs> that the gotcha is not, Something to be sought yeah. after. He seems like he kind of relishes <laughs> being, being right about things, but maybe that's not fair. Maybe he was just having that kind of a day. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I'll have to watch some of those. I'm I'm curious. I've never heard of the book before, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, that is one of the. I mean, even going back to like the ideal speech situation type of conversation where you're setting the groundwork for like what is allowed in this conversation, and when you see someone or you yourself are attacking the other person or their character directly, that is a, that's one of those kind of off limits things for me. And so when I see that happen, I'm, I'm not afraid to call that out when it's like, you just really aren't curious or like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, that's a, that's a line. Like you can say, you just don't understand what I'm saying right now. And there's, there's a, another pathway in the conversation is like, well, help me understand what you're actually saying. So Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, my dog's having another <laughs> okay. another dream. So, dog lover, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bring him on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, come over here. <laughs> that got him. He's he's out of it now. <laughs> yeah. So I I think maybe maybe we can transition to putting bringing back the idea of defeaters, and then putting them in the center of a very typical kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> we brought this up briefly. I think. And again, I'm going to apologize to listeners if I'm repeating too much. But So we'll call this a defeater. This is not my idea. We did talk about the scriptural warrant in 1 Corinthians 10, or is it 2 Corinthians 10, I think? Um, so a defeater, to define it, is a thought in somebody's head that if true, then Jesus, as scriptures reveal him, cannot be true. And it can tend to be something that has a taken-for-granted quality it just feels self-evidently true, and it may be completely unexamined. It's, it's uh, what Paul calls a stronghold, let's say. Um, and so an example would be, if it's true that a loving God cannot send somebody to hell, if that's true, then the Christian gospel can't be true. Mm-hmm. Although you could quibble at the word send, but I don't think that's that useful. And so the thing about defeaters like this is that they change from time to time and place to place. So I think the doctrine of hell is a major defeater in our culture. But there are places where it's the opposite. People that have seen enough violence across a lifetime that the fact that God is just and eternally so is what keeps them from going crazy, from strapping on a suicide vest Mm -hmm. because God is just. And people don't get away with the God-awful things that they've done in, in in a horribly evil and violent world. And, and evil is a religious word and it's a, it's the only word that's big enough for what happens in this world. So, But the point is that hell is just not the same defeater in some places as it might be in others. Or it's wrong to say you have the truth. It's wrong and arrogant to say you found the truth. Well, that's a defeater in, in our crazy culture. But in another culture, why would I even listen to you if, you if you don't even think you have the truth? And so they have this quality to them, and I think it's kind of a good thing. Maybe we'll have an episode just on what we feel are the top five or the top 10, and just begin to develop our approach to the most common 
skeptical challenges that people have. And so I'll let you react to that mm-hmm. if you want to before I say we can say, now, how, does, how do these conversations unfold? And so I'll hold that thought if you have something. Uh, not not too much, just that uh, the the idea of an objective truth is not usually the groundwork of the conversation that um, I'm in. Usually there's, how could there be such a thing? You know, everyone perceives the world differently. Everyone has a different interpretation. We all live in this semantic web of interconnected meaning. And how could we possibly all mean the same thing? And I think there are some, there are some interesting things to explore there, but uh, when I believe in capital T truth mm-hmm. and there's like, well, it's almost like, yeah, that's just your opinion, man. Like, but I'm happy for you, but I don't, I, that's just not true for me. And so that's, that's usually where the conversation for me starts. So maybe, sure. maybe we'll cover that in more detail when we get to like the, the next episode, when we're starting to speak specifically towards some of these, uh, yeah, uh, skeptical arguments that. that are coming so up. So I think on the top five would be, there's no such thing as truth. That, that whole postmodern soup mm-hmm. that people kind of love to swim in. The, the new one, though, is beyond there's no such thing as truth, there's I don't care about the truth. I just don't even care about it as a category. Mm-hmm. I, I just have my preferences. And so that's kind of a post-truth thing. So I think, yeah, we should come back to and just have, have an episode talking through what are the most common defeaters in American culture. and That'd be great. We can kind of maybe yeah. have that be less yeah. planned, be more spontaneous. But mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, the apologetic conversation would go like this that I would communicate the beauty and majesty of Christ the way I always have. So nothing, this is not some big change in how we go about our witness. We would just advocate for Christ the way we have, whatever that happens to be. And then from my time as a home missionary, when I had, you know, thousands of these conversations, it's the most natural thing in the world that you would ask a person, I can see you're not buying it, and that they would then offer their defeater. Well, there's just too much suffering, or the church is such a hot mess and a disaster that I just can't buy it. And they will tell you what their defeaters are and what their most important ones are. But so the first part of the conversation is kind of saying, I'm going to witness for Christ as I always have. The person might not believe a word of it, but they can understand at least why a person might want it to be true. They can understand why I'm so joyful about it, even if they're not buying it, and then the defeater comes up. And I thought, to take you seriously, I'm going to want to talk about your defeater with you and ask the question we've been asking and stuff. But it's not going to be like I have to win the argument. Because even if I did, you'll have another one and another one and another one. If you're just going to exhaust all the objections you can think of, that's not that useful. But this is where we say with Coco, put a stone in the, in the shoe means you walk away saying, hmm, my biggest reason to reject Christian truth is such and such, and how much sense does that really make? And just to put the, the stone in the shoe, which is to, to irritate you at that spot, mm-hmm. and maybe what seemed self-evidently true isn't so more, and maybe what's gone unexamined isn't unexamined anymore. And then, But the idea is not to bog down with defeaters. The idea is to take people seriously, as we've been saying, but then to get back to even a fuller articulation of Christian truth. And that that would be God willing with an open Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I just have a lot of stories of people who this was the thing. Someone just challenged them to read their Bible. Yeah, and let's talk, and that's really all it took. Yeah, but because that's where the power is, and we we as Lutherans are very very clear about 
that simple issue. For sure. That I mean, it's almost a parallel to the story that you shared earlier with, um, you know, talking to the lady on the couch who was, mm. you know, I guess the first part of that conversation was uh, probably the the five on one scenario where, mm-hmm. you know, what it yeah. wasn't going. So the entry point may isn't, isn't the same, but you get to a point where someone's very willing to share. Here's the reason why I don't have the same hope that you have. And then that, that you're right there. They're right on the tracks of being able to like open the word of God and articulate Christian truth in that way. Mm-hmm. The one thing I maybe want to uh, touch on too is the stone in the shoe metaphor as like a maybe tripling down on like, it's not meant to be irritating for being irritating sake. It's meant to facilitate a state of inwardness and like self-reflection of like, why like, is this a a belief that's reasonable to have for me? Or like, why do I actually, maybe I've been taking for granted why some of these things I've, I've held for so long. And so that's, that's what the, the goal of this is not to leave someone like, Oh man, you want, we, we were trying to set up further conversations about it. So mm-hmm. just to keep that, yeah, keep that. Exactly in mind. Right. Yeah. I've had it a stone in my kindness. shoe before. I remember at St. Olaf in, in that cross country race. That was not, it is not fun. It is uh, no. and I couldn't find it when I took see. it out. <laughs> I took off my shoe. I was trying to find the stone. I couldn't <laughs> find it. I put the shoe back on and it was still there. It was a, uh, it was a rough one. <laughs> Oh, that brings back all kinds of memories. Bring up cross what country, a great so. course, though. St. Olaf? Yeah. You like how that course ended? Remember that? Yeah, this short little uphill and then 50 meters Upturned to the uphill. finish line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Agony. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, hey, very good. Um, the next slide I'm looking at, the last one, I think maybe for this conversation, unless you have other things, is my slide just says... Um, has the phrase, the soft apologetic, and I don't know where I got that. That's not mine. But the soft apologetic of art, mm-hmm. I think we've talked about that some. Yeah. You know. We, we, you, um, we're, we get that phrase from episode two of Apologetics, which is the one right before <laughs> this. <laughs> Did we talk about it there? I do Did believe, I, 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 I remember, this, this is my favorite part of Apologetics, is where you can, you can have something that isn't specifically uh, theology, but something that has many parallels, the beauty, symbol, symbology, mystery, art, um, story, any of these other things that just beautifully weave together into a, mm-hmm. an apologetic conversation. Yeah, That's my favorite, and, one of my favorite things. I believe God exists because St. Matthew passion exists. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just love the thought that we can communicate through art or, or through it invitation or in our hospitality, opening up our home for strangers and caring, caring what happens to people in the world. Um, at the apologetic symposium at the seminary a couple of years back, a few years back, um, Paul Wendon, then president Paul Wendon at the seminary had this line that our love is quote, as unanswerable as a sunrise. And so it's just a very poetic line. That mm-hmm. They'll know what we're saying is they'll, they'll know our teachings are, teachings are true by our love. And so there's this whole other broader way of thinking how do I bring the message of Jesus to bear on the people I care about? Mm-hmm. And we can kind of open our minds on that and unhinge our minds and think broadly of all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That's one Caring of what happens to people. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's one of my favorite uh, parts of your dissertation. If I remember correctly, you oh, paint this beautiful you. picture of 
it, well, <laughs> you're describing a beautiful picture of a, a lamb with its neck slit open and the blood creates the, like a picture of the world or a picture of a country, or maybe you have it right in front of you. I don't know, but no, but no, you, we talked about that under indirect communication. That's what I'm just kind of remembering. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah but it, yeah. yeah, it is very indirect because it, it does kind of sneak in <laughs> and it, it's, yeah. it's right there. All of a sudden it's, you can't put up your resistances yeah. the way you usually yeah. do to that type of thing. Um, but just the idea that almost abstract types of art or n- non, you, you wouldn't necessarily think of this as something Christian. I, I suppose the lamb painting yeah. is, is kind of specifically one thing, but just that it evokes something that you can't really get without it being there. Mm. Yeah. So with a son-in-law of mine, I often thought about the hospitality piece before he was our son-in-law of just being at the supper table with us. And he knows what our worldview is and we try to make it something he can imagine living inside. Um, this beautiful truth as scripture reveals it. And so it's a, it's a soft apologetic for sure. Um, so one writer, I'm just really feeling paranoid about repeating everything. <laughs> uh, one writer named Weber has a book called ancient future faith in which he draws the parallels from the first century to today, mm-hmm. increasing parallels. And that's where he advocates the things you were talking about, advocates symbol and beauty yeah. and mystery and community. And this, that's not making an argument, you know, with a strenuous use of reason. That's that's just symbol and beauty and mystery yep. and community. So. Just transparently. If we brought that book up in the last one, consider it as a strong recommendation for the second time. Or if it's the first time, uh, also consider it a strong recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I also if you edit it, yeah. If you edit this down and leave about five minutes, then maybe you don't <laughs> publish that one. <laughs> Oh my! Wonderful. So my excuse is I'm 61. What's your excuse, John? Um, 30 something. I can't forget. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, fun to talk about. Yeah. Hope things that we repeat are worth repeating. Yeah. There, there is naturally overlap in in all of this, but yeah. um, each each episode does have some. Uh, even if we have a few things that are repeated, I think the each episode does have a very core, you know, kukul. We talked about that today. That's mm-hmm. a very, um, that's a brand new idea we had not brought up before, mm-hmm. the, those types of things. And I think we've been more or less uh, new material for each episode. So um, otherwise, yeah, send us fan mail, but don't <laughs> rate us on Apple Podcasts. We already have Do the rating that we desire. Rate us. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> Hey, up for dessert? Have you thought yeah, of it? Yeah, I, I... I actually thought about oh, okay. it immediately after we brought it up. Really. Oh, I actually remembered wonderful. that I thought about it before we hopped on, and I just had forgotten what it was. <laughs> I was so into uh, the, I was so into the the main course. We'll we'll say that. <laughs> okay. Okay. You want to go first, or should I? Sure. I have um, I have another book recommendation. It's called Oh, me too. The okay. Elements of Typographic Style by Robert. Bringhurst, one of my favorite books of all time. And maybe it's it's a very niche book, but it just goes <laughs> through the history of, you know, all the way back to printing presses in the late 1400s, I believe, early 1500s in Venice, especially was a hot area, um, Gutenberg's Press, Germany, mm-hmm. just going mm-hmm. through the different, what brought about 
the way that our alphabet looks throughout history? And then what has led it to take on so many different types of uh, typography, <coughs> fonts? Um, it's in my backpack permanently. I always have it with me. There is a handful of very, um, I just, it's a very, maybe it's a, a nice distraction sometimes to pull out. And I just find it very intriguing. So, yeah. That strikes me as the kind of thing where I have zero interest in that. And if I opened that book, I probably would be fascinated. There's, like that kind there, of there's a handful of, um, I mean, especially early printing presses, like with Gutenberg printing scripture was one of the main mass produced pieces of literature. Mm -hmm. And, and so to see the way that they lay out books, the way that they have the, oh no, I'm forgetting, uh, not illustrations, but, um, there's ornate pictures interweaved into the text or like Mm -hmm. used as the first character in a huge body of, uh, uh, text or a paragraph. Um, just there's, there's, reasons behind that and history behind that. And I find it fascinating to see. Well, that was part of our media ecology conversation, right? Where what happens, just that little revolution of going from reading a handwritten script to something that's, you know, more, I don't know what the word I want, but more, mm-hmm. more uniform. Yeah. How much faster you can read, um, how much more you can take in, how much more authority a person feels. Yeah. It's just a book you no, no longer can add to like you could with books that were handwritten. Yeah. Yeah. Baskerville is a very aggressive font. Like it will hurt your eyes. <laughs> some people said when it first came out or, you know, why is the font of the signs on the road the way that it is? It's very specific how they came about with the way that these characters are shaped. Mm. So specifically that they're intelligible from farther away um, mm. where you can read it when it's very small in your, in your vision. Mm. Or the way that you lay out a book as, uh, you know, are you using uh, different ratios for how the block of text on the page is in relation to the margins on this side or that side and how that relates to all these other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's one of the things where it's like it's an art by itself that when you have a text that has something very specific to say, you can make meaningful choices about how you present that text that are additive to the the work as a whole, which I find fascinating. Who was I just talking to that told me that they purchased a font? And that was such a strange idea to me. Mm-hmm. And then he has a problem he can't share it with everybody because mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you? Yeah. I've never I've never bought a font. Yeah, <laughs> I've never wanted to buy a font. I I have. <laughs> <laughs> was it you? Did you there's, say it to me? There's a. I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, okay. I don't think I've shared this, this specific okay. thing. Um, but Adobe Jensen is, uh, if you have uh, in a Adobe subscription is, is one of the fonts that comes with it. And then you're kind of free to use it in all of the, the things that you do. And so being in the media world, I've, I have uh, access to a pretty large library by itself. So I don't really have to purchase some, but you know, some computers won't have Helvetica. Others will. Um, and that's just by who owns the license to that. Is mm-hmm. it Microsoft Windows or mm-hmm. that type of thing? There, I mean, there, that's a history too. You know, when you're digitizing fonts, that's a whole uh, new category that wasn't really something relevant until hmm. maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago at the earliest. I mean, uh, sure, it was always that the font was part of the foundry that printed the book. 
And so the foundry would be commissioning uh, typographers to create these fonts in their different point sizes and whatnot mm-hmm. and, and then be held there as part of that foundry. And now the foundries are more or less digitized. But makes me I, think of rhetorical analysis in which something's affecting you in a way you can't explain when you're at a superficial grasp of that thing. And so mm-hmm. that'd be where I am as I, why do I like this page in this book? Mm-hmm. Why don't I like the, to read that other book and not able to really identify these are non-discursive symbols that are just felt as qualities. It's hard to articulate mm-hmm. them, but that's interesting. One of the things that, I mean, it's a, a long ways away and maybe not happening, but if I, if I was in a position where I could make a printing press that was like one that they had in the late 1400s and mm. kind of reprint books like, uh, you know, incunables, I think they're called, the books from before 15, 1500, um, but just to print them the way that they did, to have the, the same technology and to use that as like a, you mean, you could print books the way that they were and make like limited edition runs that would kind of help fund the thing is it could be like maybe uh i don't know maybe someone's maybe there's a handful of people that would find it very interesting to have like mm. an almost exact replica of the way that some of these really really old books at the time when books sure. were just starting to come about would come about but it would also be a great experience i don't know there'd be a fun field trip like come you, all the kids can print their own page of something and Something like that. That would be. Yeah. A, it would be just a fun little. Uh, I don't know. I I just enjoy getting back to like the the roots of things. We we meet this in Hebrew studies because back in the day before computers, it was just enormously difficult to type set a page of Hebrew. When you think of the vowels above and below and so on, mm-hmm. just enormously difficult. And so mm-hmm. there are certain sources where. There has to be an index in the back with all the corrections and stuff because you can't just insert something, right? It's why you don't... Mm-hmm. Well, one example is a book that makes me laugh every time I think about it. It's this index. It goes in the order of words in the Bible to tell you to where, where to find that word in the, in the dictionary or the lexicon. And I imagine the guy running through Zarnavan printing, printing press or Zarnavan publishing house saying, we forgot Gimel Ahmed because every word that starts with those two letters, Gimel Ahmed, was, they, they missed. <laughs> and they can't, they, I know. So there's just like 30 oh, page no. thing in the back of the index with all the Gimel <clears throat> And so. <laughs> I know, right? Appendix B. Oh, but it's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were first found around 45, if memory serves. But it's why the printed Hebrew Bible we have from 72 has almost none of that in it because it just took a generation to typeset the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And you can't just go adding references to, to Qumran or mm-hmm. the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so we, we see this all the time Yeah, where this must have been mm-hmm. unspeakably difficult to type to typeset these works. And it was, it yeah. was someone's labor of love for a lifetime Cause, I mean, in some cases, you know. Mm-hmm. To, to get the, and we kind of take right. for granted that we can just open up a Word document, yeah. even just in a browser and just start, you know, <laughs> any font we want out of the list of hundreds and then uh, change the margins at will and then you know, just type and delete and all of that. When before it was like, even even when it was just a typewriter with just the English alphabet, it was, you're you're committed to that letter when yeah. it goes committed down on the page. Word, yeah. And then a um, random association yeah. as I 
recently watched My Octopus Teacher. Are you aware of that documentary? And listen, <laughs> You're what? My Octopus Teacher. <laughs> and I was like, who cares about this? Who cares? I'm just not interested. And then I started watching it, and it's incredible. It is so interesting. That's, that's like the font world. All, who cares about fonts, I, John? But... Before I, but I get uh, it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a double dose of dessert. That's one of my other uh, favorite books. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I think it's um, but it's about octopi and just how unfathomably smart they are, and That's just what the ways that they think out. and that like how they're they respond to certain Incredible. situations and like the puzzles that they can figure out and just like there's something. Like they there, recognize you, they're very there is a relationship creatures. between this man and his octopus in the in the wild. There is a relationship there for sure, and uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's the soul of an octopus. Okay, exploration into the wonder of consciousness. Mm. Yeah, you can't even believe it. It's it's. It is kind of breathtaking. So yeah, two for one, two books, two book recommendations, Here's one dessert. another one. I got one yeah. for you. Um, Three? It's called The Six Conversations by Heather Holman. Um, it's a Christian book about conversation, and it's marvelous. It's not maybe everything said the way I would say it theologically, but it's not bad by any means. It's mostly really safe and comfortable that way. But... She says exactly what we say in our podcast. I've never come across anybody that says the same thing, which is um, kind of people who study the Bible have a real contribution to making communication. And so she's looking at verses like, like uh, each one should not look to his own interest, but the interests of others from Philippians. And so she's got four main principles for conversation. And number one is be curious. Number one is just to be genuinely curious. And there's the warrant for that. Second one is you can be curious, but if you're not holding them in high regard, then it will kind of fall on his face for that reason. So in humility, consider others greater than yourselves or better than yourselves or more significant than yourselves is the biblical warrant there. Mm -hmm. Curious to hold in high regard. The third one is investment. That is that what you want in life, what you're after in this season in life, I'm after that too. And to feel that, is very much my own interest as well. And so that's carry each other's burdens for this fulfills the law of Christ. And the last one, what ties it all together then is disclose. So this mm-hmm. is the place for it, where it becomes mutual, where we, we become transparent in the ways we've talked about. The verse she references there is um, Paul saying to the Thessalonian Christians, we weren't only pleased to share with you the gospel, but our very lives. And so being curious, holding people in high regard, investing in the way described and and then having this be a mutual mutual sharing and i've said maybe in my own teaching two-thirds to three-quarters of what she says but she says it so well and then she adds mm-hmm. some elements that are that are just really good and kind of new to yeah so i'm i'm eager to make a create a conversation lab for my class really just based on this book and there's a lot more than just those four points yeah yeah so highly recommend Recommended. Very cool. Six conversations. That reminds me of, is it social discourse theory that is kind of revolves around this idea of um, disclosure mm-hmm. and purposefully disclosing or non-disclosing? Certainly. Well, also relational dialectics, I suppose. Definitely. Here's your subtitle. 
Pathways to Connecting in an Age of Isolation and Incivility. Mm-hmm. And she starts with the epidemic of loneliness in our culture, yeah. especially among college students. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She just asks students questions about their social experience and how many just, no one ever asks me questions. They say, no one ever shows any interest in me. Mm-hmm. I haven't had, haven't had a deep conversation and I don't know when. And um, So it's just a marvelous book. The six conversations. We'll have to, I'll have to add it to the list. There it is. Yeah, my brother-in-law, a retired pastor named Phil, just sent it to me on a lark and uh, I finally picked it Very up. Very cool. I think it, it. Well, there was one other one that I remember yeah. in when I was uh, was it was I in IPC class at the time? I can't remember. There is uh, an author. It's more towards the social media type of phenomenon that we're dealing with. Um, but speak. Uh, but how to have a conversation? Yeah, sure. Tuchel Turkle. Turkle, yeah. yeah. I remember Sherry that. Turkle. I forget what Turkle. it was called, but I remember yeah. uh, she... Yes, that's the book one. called Reclaiming um, Conversation. And yeah. so mm-hmm. kind of the book centered around, uh, is it Thoreau's three chairs? He has three chairs. One is solitude. One is uh, with right. one other person. One's with a group or something like that. I can't remember, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what she's doing, I forgot to say, that's like what you and I like to do, is she peppers her work mm-hmm. with the science of relationship and and the brain science and so on and so on, and the social sciences and what they're discovering about loneliness and so on. And then she finds the Bible, as we've said before, in different contexts. Paul was there 2,000 years ahead of his time, so was Jesus, mm-hmm. right? And so the very yeah, same I premise mean, of our we podcast. We should maybe just do uh, a a book recommendation podcast. I feel like we could go on for forever because they're like, because social intelligence. Oh, that's uh, a Daniel good Goldman, uh, emotional intelligence. Idea. Yeah. Speaking to the air, history of communication. I wonder if there, yeah, there might be something there where we could idea. just kind of give a little synopsis, a little teaser, maybe pick up some sponsorship money on. Mm-hmm. No, just kidding. <laughs> We're not <laughs> be. Yeah. Yeah, we just each bring a list of ten books, and we each take turns. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that ask sounds like each a fun other one. about these books. That'd be great. I'll take you that one. So this is yeah, the first podcast that. of the the most recent ones about in, in apologetics, where my computer hasn't completely freaked out the entire time. It hasn't uh, hasn't shut down on me without uh, warning. Uh, so that's that's comfortable. So the only the only technical hindrance, yeah. congratulations, in this podcast has been. Uh, my awkwardness <laughs> at, the, at the beginning throughout. And, and yeah, I'm, uh, the, I am still a burden to myself. Oh, but it was <laughs> delightful. Do you remember those, the tweets? What were they? Uh, Kim, Kim Kierker Kardashian. Kim Kardashian. <laughs> Kardashian. I cleaned my closet today, <laughs> but I am still a burden to myself. <laughs> oh, those were great. Oh, we should, yeah. that should be dessert again. Very we should fun. pull those back. And... <laughs> <laughs> Are you still going? <laughs> oh, great. Okay, I'm stopping.